this is not disposable. You know, we can't use this and move on. It's not like there's another Yakima Valley down there where you can just plant new grapes. I mean, this is one of the great places in the world to so grow you, wine grapes. So it has to be maintained sustainably. Yeah. To not be lost. Exactly. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. Is wine sustainable? Well, here in Washington State, it's potentially more sustainable to grow grapes and make them into wine than anywhere in the world. And our guest this week explains why he shares his story of how he became a winemaker and has devoted his life to the art and craft of creating wines. And he talks about what is probably one of the most under-recognized wine-growing regions on the West Coast or beyond right here in Washington State. We talk with Ko Din Codin Cellars. He makes wine in Sunnyside, Washington. We go right into his tasting room to have the conversation this week. I'm Dylan Honkoop. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. Glad you are here with us for this conversation and our conversations every week, showing the real people behind our food and reconnecting our food system to where our food really comes from here in Washington State. Mana Insurance Group is one of our sponsors making this all possible. We thank them. ManaInsuranceGroup.com is their website. And as I've said many times before, their whole philosophy is about planning ahead, not just waiting for things to go wrong. Also, Dairy Farmers of Washington, WaDairy.org is their website. They tell a lot of stories themselves about Washington dairy farmers and the stories behind the dairy products we enjoy here in Washington State and that are made here in Washington State and then enjoyed all over the world. So check them out again as well at uh, WaDairy.org. Have a pretty incredible story that led you to this point here. How did you become a winemaker and be a part of this world? Where did this start for you? You know, it's funny. I grew up in Texas and, and around the country. My dad worked for an oil company, Texaco, and so um, you know, I kind of grab and I grew up in Texas and I gravitated towards that and ended up working in the oil industry in Oklahoma, and I realized that uh, after about a year and a half that it was absolutely not what I wanted to do. And, uh, and I, I did a hard reset. I, I kind of said, <laughs> this is before computers, but I re basically uh, rebooted and uh, stopped, uh, moved back to Texas from Oklahoma and uh, really thought about what it was that I really wanted to spend my life doing, yeah. you know, rather than carrying on the family tradition. And, uh, <laughs> and it was... Uh, uh, you know, it took a while, and uh, but I realized I had started uh, enjoying wine when I was in Oklahoma, and uh, and uh, I started thinking about it, and I thought, you know, I could make, I could do that. That that would be fun. You know, it's uh, and I looked into it and found out um, what was involved with becoming a winemaker, and it really involved moving out west and. Um, I had been out west. I had traveled uh, after college. I'd taken a motorcycle trip out west, and I just fell in love with the with the western half of the country. And and um, and it, at the time, I hadn't thought about it, but I I had remember saying to myself, "I'll be back," hmm. you know. And uh, so I ended up moving out uh, uh, west to study winemaking at UC Davis in California. That really that was where you that was where you went at the time back in the early nineties. And um, ended up getting a job in California, in Napa, and I worked in Napa uh, from 89 through 96. And in 96, I came, I was recruited up to Washington to make wine up here. And, and um, it, was, it was kind of easy for me to decide to do that because uh, it, was, it was a new, well, first of all, I wasn't from California. I mean, California is wonderful, but I wasn't held by family right. or anything like that. So. Right. And in fact, my sister at the time had, was living in Seattle, and so I thought oh, I'll be closer to family. It's a great opportunity, and uh, so I moved up here in 1996 to make white wine for a, a, a larger winery uh, called Hogue Cellars, and then um, eventually became the head winemaker there, and ended up working at Hogue for 17 years. Wow! But uh, ultimately, I decided I wanted to do more traditional artisanal type winemaking and so I worked my way in that direction 
And in 2013, I was able to, to break off on my own and start my, my own winery. And that's here in Sunnyside. Yes. Why Sunnyside? Well, you know, it's funny. We, I settled here in the Yakima Valley. And um, the Yakima Valley grows about half of the grapes in the state. It's, it's really kind of the... Uh, uh, it, and it's, it has this great combination of volume and diversity and small farms as well as uh, smaller growers. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, a lot of, you get into the, some of the outlying regions and there are bigger farms and down in the horse heavens or mm-hmm. in, on the Wallach Slope. And um, so I, it, it, having that um, diversity of, cl- we have both a diversity of climate as well as growers and sites. Um, and it's big enough that you can f- pretty much find exactly what you're looking for. And many of the best wineries in the state do just that. They don't necess- they're not just necessarily here, but many of the top wines in the state are sourced exclusively from the from the Yakima Valley. Really? So, I mean, I knew all this as an insider having worked here. And Even though Yakima Valley isn't like a brand, like, the, like you mentioned, the Horse Heaven Hills, anybody around the state and beyond in the region and maybe even farther know that brand, really. Yeah, and but it's, they don't know Yakima Valley, and that's that's something we're working to change too. We have a, the Wine Yakima Valley, which is our marketing organization, and um, and you know it's just a it's a unique area because we do supply so many uh, grapes go to Seattle, to Woodenville, uh, Puget Sound. They go to to Oregon. They go to Walla Walla. They go to Cheyenne. The grapes from the Yakima Valley are in wines from all over the state. Yeah, and there are some of those wineries, best wines as well. So, for a, for a variety of reasons, it's it's you know if you're say you're in Napa, well, you have to to have your wines be called Napa. They have to be made in Napa. In you know, and, yeah. and the wineries are there inside that little area, and it's almost the the inverse here, where so many of our grapes go everywhere. Hmm. And um, so, and we have three sub appellations as well. We have Red Mountain, uh, Snipes Mountain. And the Rattlesnake Hills and Candy Mountain now as well four four sub appellations so um, it's a big area it's very diverse and uh, we had settled here in the in Sunnyside and actually now in Granger which is about ten miles away so uh, we're very happy living here in the in this middle of the Yakima Valley uh, lots of friends and and colleagues here um, I know the this whole all the back roads and vineyards like the back of my hand and so. For me, this was just, this is where I've settled. This is where I've planted my flag, really. And um, it, it's easy to get almost anywhere from here. It's easy to get here from almost anywhere. Mm, I mean, very it's centrally a, located. Yeah, right? it's, it's, a, uh, it's just perfect for me. And so it, since I'd been in Sunnyside for, and, and in the very close vicinity for 25 years, 25 years now at the time, it had been about 17, um, it was just natural for me, and so um, it, it's it's uh, it was also fresh ground too. In in a way, there's only there's two wineries in the town now: Cote Bonneville and uh, Cote and Cellars. So uh, it was it was not like I'd be the 14th or 25th winery in the <laughs> little area. Right. So basically, um, it was my community, and this is where I wanted to to put down my roots. What was it like making that move from doing it for others and saying, I'm going to have my own brand, I'm going to have my own winery, this is my baby now? Well, you know, the great thing about working as a professional winemaker is that you get to, you know, you work your way up through the stages. You know, that's that's the hardest thing to do in terms of uh, if you're not born into a winemaking family is to get it's almost it's, it's such a craft and in my opinion you really need to start at the bottom and work your way up through the ranks and learn each step as you go through and you got to learn the vineyards and you, i mean it just takes a long time and you can you can make wine by say, deciding you're going to make wine and calling up a grower and saying deliver me a ton of grapes and i'm going to make wine out of them but if you're really trying to reflect not only the region, but the, class, the techniques that have been accepted and, and developed over the millennia, you need to kind of grow up in it. And, and, and either you can do that 
because your grandfather and your father and now you or your grandmother and your mother, you know, oh, yeah. it. or you can work your way up through in a career. And then, but in winemaking, you have to kind of plot your course because there's so many different ways you can go about it. Um, and, um, and at the, at a point, uh, probably seven years before I started my winery, I realized that's where I wanted to end up going. And I had to start plotting how, you know, my direction in that direction so that when the time came that I was able to, to break away, I could. And, um, and I, I put all the pieces in place so that could happen. And, um, but I was glad, I, I think I didn't do it too soon uh, for a variety of reasons. I'm glad I waited, but I'm glad I didn't wait any longer either because it takes a long time too. Yeah. From the time you start to the time you have wine in the bottle to the time that you get, you know, you start developing the notoriety for those wines, et cetera. It's just a, yeah, it's how do you develop that following and people recognizing the brands? Because you can make amazing wines, but if nobody knows about them, you know, it is a crowded market space getting to be as wine has become so much more popular in the last couple of decades. Well, it is. You have to differentiate yourself somehow. Well, and wine, the thing is, wine is the most, if not the most, one of the most niche type of uh, products, bar none. You know, I mean, everything from two buck chuck to $10,000 bottles of, you know, of of trophy wine or whatever. I mean, it just goes, and everything in between. And so you realize that it's, you actually have to define what you're doing, define your who your consumer is and customers are, and then target them specifically. And you know, and it may be that you're making a million cases a year and you're targeting major grocery brands, right? Or it could be that you're making you know fifty thousand cases a year and you're targeting restaurants at a certain price point. Or uh, in my case, I'm a very small. Uh, I I focus on uh, vineyard de- designated single vineyard wines from. Uh, this wonderful region, the Yakima Valley, and I work primarily direct to consumer, and I have uh, small accounts and things like that. But it's a, um, and I do most, if well, for the last year and a half, everything myself. So it's a one-person operation. So I'm at kind of the small end of the spectrum. Yeah. But I also have uh, a lot of uh, connections within the industry and within the whether that's you know the production, you know, the winemaking part, the academic part, the uh, media, etc. And it's just, you just have to network just like everybody does and expand your network and and focus and that kind of thing. So that's what I've, that's how I've done it. You said that you do kind of more of a traditional approach to your winemaking. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? And, And what are your wines like as a result of that? Well, so, you know, winemaking and wines, um, have a, you know obviously go way back you know thousands of years and there's been this um, continuum from the first you know the first prehistoric person who <laughs> who uh, realized that this was a good thing yeah you know up through the you know through the Romans and the and the and and the Greeks and the Romans and then uh, into the uh, you know Thomas Jefferson. I mean, even back, yeah. Yeah. and all of this time, there have been um, there has been a relative consensus wherever you are. This one, this are these are the grapes that grow well here. These are how we make these wines in our area, and there's a tradition and a technique, and we add to it and we learn more. But it's a it's a continuum, and within that continuum, there are recognized um, kind of um, there's there are contextual clues and, and things that we know about and we can relate. How do I relate my wine to this other wine over here, to this wine that was made 50 years ago? And that really, you know, it, if you're just talking about wine that you go you know, in a can that you're picking up at the convenience store, that's, that's kind of not, a, it's, it's, there may be a little bit of that, but when you're talking about fine wine, um, it exists it doesn't exist in a vacuum. It exists in a con- context of other wines that are being made and that have been made in the past. And you can, you know, you can say, I'm going to be a new, 
you know, I'm going to be a, a wild child and I'm going to make a blend of Gewurztraminer and Cabernet Sauvignon, you know, which is like, no one does that. <laughs> and there's a, there's a good reason people don't do that very often. Right. If, you know, unless they make a mistake. In the winery. <laughs> it's been known to happen. But, but, you, but that's because we found, we, you know, people before us and the people we, we know and the people that we've, you know, wines that we've had, have, have done a lot of experimentation over the years. And, like, we know these flavors work well together. And these techniques work well. And so, that, I mean, I'm, I'm belaboring a point, but there's a good reason to give your, cons- your customer a context to re- relate yeah. to. Yeah. So if they're looking at a Coden wine that's a Cabernet Sauvignon or a Bordeaux-style blend that's made of the, 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 the varieties that traditionally go into Bordeaux-style wines, which include Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot and Cabernet Franc and Petit Verdot and often, you know, on occasion Malbec and, and um, these kind of wines, then there's a context for them to say, oh, okay, I, this is really good and it tastes kind of like this other wine that I liked that was a Bordeaux or this, it is a, you know, it's better than that one that I had before in, in this style. Yeah. And it has a certain type of oak aging yeah. profile that, that gives you, makes it, comparable and relatable so these are important for people who are into or relate to wine and want to learn more about it i mean and beers are the same way it's a it's a stout it's a it's a ipa it's a northwest ipa it's a northeast ipa it's a you know it's whatever but it fits within a context it's a hazy northwest ipa (laughs) but it always you know and you can make these things that nobody understands or has ever seen before but in general those are very small because most consumers are looking for, you know, for something they can latch onto in a contextual fashion. So, but within that, within those constraints, there's a world of, you know, of variety and innovation and stylistic things you can do. And it's just, if they're just the guardrail, it's kind of like the guardrail. So (laughs) in my, in my mind, um, the reason I respect the, the, you know, the, tradition that's come before me and i want to you know hew to it to the extent that i can i'll I'll do you know if there's new technology that i feel is beneficial i'll i'll utilize it you know for instance i use uh stelvin twist off screw caps for my wines which is but only because i've done years and decades of research that showed me that they are not only um they they preserve the wine more consistently and uh, from bottle, there's less bottle-to-bottle variation. There's never a problem with the corks. And they actually age better as well as or better than a natural cork. Mm-hmm. So I've made that conversion. And that may sound... Isn't there generally a move away from natural cork because of the problems that it can have? There, there are more options now. You know, the natural cork is just so... Nat- I mean... For over 100 years, maybe actually several hundred years, it's been the closure of choice, yeah. you know, before we had anything else. It, it, and it works great. There's, var- there's variability amongst corks, and there can be off flavors associated with them. And, uh, you know, so it's only been in the last 60 years that we've really seen alternatives to corks. And the, the alternative that I use was developed in the mid-60s. You know, start. I mean, the screw cap is new because it's not two hundred years old, but it's it's been around and it's been very well researched. And um, in terms of physically working, it's it's been established. In fact, the the industries of New Zealand, Australia, and Switzerland all are ninety nine percent screw caps. Hmm. In fact, that the only corks they use are ones they ship to America (laughs) for the most part. But it's it's. It's actually a conservative choice when it comes to something we know that works really well. Yeah. And then it boils down to consumer, consumer education and saying, you know, this is, we, I use this because it makes my yeah. wine better. It's not lower class because it's a screw no, cap. It's, it's, you know, and there's some people who have, who are very, very traditional and that, and they just don't want anything but a cork and that's fine. You know, like I said, it's a, there's a consumer for every wine, and there's a wine for every consumer. So, yeah. uh, but I do not. It, the work I've done shows that there's only benefits to the wine quality for the type of uh, you know the type of closure that I use on my bottles. 
So what are your wines? What kind of wines do you do? So the wines I make are, um, I make a Chardonnay, a traditionally styled barrel fermented uh, Chardonnay that's, the, I press the grapes, the juice goes into the barrel, it ferments there, it goes through a secondary fermentation, and then it settles. I, you know, there's winemaking that goes on stirring and topping and things like that, but basically after I wait for, 17 months to pass and the wine settles and then i bottle it unfiltered so it's an unfiltered white wine wow it's uh, when done well it's very it's a traditional style has traditional uh, flavors and complexity and it's you're able to bottle it without any filtration uh the same for uh, my red wine so that's the white wine i make Mm -hmm. um i do a, a, a southern rhone style red which is grenache syrah morvedra a blend we call it GSM, but it's a traditionally uh, a traditional Southern Rhone style uh, blended wine, and it's a it's a medium bodied red with really nice uh, cherry fruit and spice and little peppery characters, and it's a it's a, a great food wine. Hmm. It's aged in oak barrels, but they're neutral barrels, so it doesn't have uh, really any oak flavors in it. And then I do a Cabernet uh, I do a Cabernet Sauvignon. Which is a which is from a specific vineyard called the Painted Hills Vineyard, hmm. uh, and it is eighty five percent Cabernet in a with the remainder uh, a blend of Petit Verdot and Mal in Malbec. Hmm. Um, I do a sort, couple of Syrahs, one from Snipes Mountain, which grows in gravel. Here's some of the rocks from Snipes Mountain. Wow, they're really cool. And then <laughs> and uh, then uh, another from Elephant Mountain Vineyard which is uh, the highest elevation vineyard in the Yakima AVA. Hmm. And then I do a red uh, Bordeaux-style blend from Elephant Mountain, which is about 60% Cabernet Sauvignon, 20% Merlot, and the remainder of uh, 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 Malbec, uh, Cabernet Franc, and Petit Bordeaux. So it's a Bordeaux-style blended wine. It's, that's n- not a majority. It's, it's, a li- it's a majority of Cabernet, but... Uh, not as much as the Cabernet Sauvignon that I make. So, and again, that's from Elephant Mountain, which, to my mind, is if if not in the state, one of the greatest vineyards in the Yakima Valley. In, in my mind, the state as well. Hmm. So it's a it's a um, and these vineyards. I mean, you ask me why I'm in the, the Yakima Valley. It's, part of it is um, there are great vineyards all throughout the state. Yeah, yeah, wonderful, uh, but I'm only one person and. Uh, there's so much to work with here. Um, you can't have it all. I mean, you can. I suppose you can. But I like being able to go have proximity to the vineyards. I can get out there whenever I need to uh, to talk to the grower, to see how the grapes are doing. Um, you know, and proximity for me may, means that I'll be there more often. And that's only that can only be good for a winemaker to be in the vineyard as much as possible. So, what's the basic process as you do it? So, um, to make wine. So, Obviously, I, we're right around harvest time right now, yeah. right? Like the grapes are being harvested, and that's when you get them, right? Yeah, so basically, you know, different grapes ripen at different times. So, and it's like apples or any, any fruit. Uh, you have different varieties, and they have, they have windows. When the, you know, there's earlier ripening varieties and mid, mid, middle and later, and then it depends on your site as a warm site or a cool site. I mean, uh, a warm site with a late variety might ripen the same as a, you know, as a cool site with an early variety kind of a thing. So, but in general, after having worked with these vineyards for, um, you know, 25 years, I know, I know what to expect. Mm-hmm. And, and, and honestly, Eastern Washington is, is one of the most c- consistent, mm. you know, predictable agricultural regions in the world mm-hmm. in terms of, it's almost boringly consistent. And that's, I mean that in the best possible way. Yeah. There's no surprises ever or very seldom. Are there any surprises? And even the surprises aren't that, aren't that bad. So, uh, uh, so it's pretty much, I know when things are going to come in. And so for instance, I know when the Chardonnay is getting close, the Chardonnay will pick the Chardonnay. We'll, I'll wait until it's close to being picked I'll be, I'll be out there sampling, tasting, and looking at the sugar numbers and the flavors. And then uh, I'll schedule the grapes, the, 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 send the bins out to the, to the field. And then um, the farmer will pick them in the morning when, the, when it's cool. Uh, I'll go out with my trailer, pick up the bins, and bring them back here. 
And uh, basically, I have a forklift that picks them up and dumps them directly into the press, yeah. squeeze the juice out into a, into a tank and let it settle overnight, and then pump it into the barrels the next day. Hmm. And that, then it never comes out from that barrel until five, two years, a year and a half later. Hmm. So that's the, that's the process for crushing, you know, picking and crushing the Chardonnay. Uh, and for my purposes, the grapes are all hand-picked. You know, you, machine picking works, but for the small amounts that I get, it's actually easier for them to go out and yeah. pick them. Yeah. And uh, for the reds, basically the, the sampling and the decision making is the same. And then the wines are the grapes are picked. I bring them in, and then uh, I I ferment in one ton bins. And the bins are made of a food grade polyethylene, the very neutral. I've had the same bins for. 15 years or 10 years, whatever it's been. And uh, they're just like a, like a milk carton or something. It's just a real neutral, easily cleanable uh, yeah. vessel. And the grapes go into that. I, oh, actually, I put the grapes under a crusher, and I crush the grapes and destem them into this, into this bin. And um, they ferment in the bin. I'll, I use a very traditional yeast for fermenting the grapes that, uh, that I've worked with for many years, and I know works it makes the best wine most consistently. Mm. I mean, the, really, I don't do much experimentation anymore because I did all of that earlier in my career. Right. And, uh, and found what worked and what worked for me and which is, which is predictable. And so it makes great wine. It has and, to, and those probably define your you know, signature style. You know, it's, what's, interesting, what's interesting is that if you've, it's... It's kind of like what I found is there are there are when it comes to deciding about yeasts and, and fermentation is you find out which one works the most consistently the best it makes the best wine most consistently because when you, when you if you work at a big place you can experiment because if you have any things that don't work you can just make them disappear but when you work in a small place where you have to get you know you may have three different batches they all have to be good yeah and so that's the the for me, I don't have a. I can't make something disappear. I have to, to make it good, uh, and so uh, fortunately, I f- I f- figured that out. And that was, you know, and a lot of it was being responsible for millions and millions of dollars worth of wine that had to be good every year. Right. You know, and so that I don't have any. I I've made all the mistakes you can make already. You know, and so I figured out how to not make them here, which is great, which <laughs> makes it, I mean, that's really important. So it makes it possible yeah. for me to do this. But um, so the reds, uh, they crushed into this, um, into the bin where they start fermenting. And then for reds, it's, this is really key is that is getting the fermentation, knowing how to, so the, to get the flavors and the color and the tannins out of the skins is really important. And part of it's the temperature you ferment at and also when you press the skins away from the from the from the wine, hmm. and depending on where the grapes are grown and how they're grown and how you ferment them, that could be sooner or later. But what you're really looking for is getting good stuff out of the the grapes, but not too much of too much in terms of tannins. So tannins are this. Uh, the best grapes have a lot of tannins. The red grapes, hmm. and um, in general, I can make a, a general in general the, the best grapes have lots of color and lots of tannins. And so, in fact, for our be- the best grapes that I get, you can actually get too much tannin if you're, if you're not careful. Fortunately, all the color comes out first, and then the tannins take a little longer. Mm. But once you get up to a, you know, the, the right amount, then you put, the, all the, put it all in a press and, and separate the skins and seeds from the, from the wine. Mm. And, um, but if you do that all right, and um, you've optimized the temperature of the fermentation, and you've... Uh, and you've pressed it at the right time, then the wine finishes fermenting, and once it's through, I just press it back into another empty bin, and then it ferments there for a few days and then goes into barrels. And so the wine goes into barrels as soon as it stops, as soon as there's no sugar left in it, it goes into barrels, and then it goes to the secondary fermentation in the barrels, and then it stays there, and uh, we'll pump it out and blend it and do things like that from time time to time, and that's part of the clarification process but if everything's done properly then it can be bottled and filtered at the end of the process which is about 22 months what's your favorite wine that you're most proud of making over the years like what year and what 
You know, it's bridal. it's it's funny. It's it's like I've get, I get this question. Um, I get this question. Uh, I've gotten it all through my career. I've gotten it in job interviews. What's the best, greatest wine you ever tasted? You know, and things like that. And <laughs> the way I ha- I have to, you know, it's almost like asking someone, a chef, what's the best plate of food he ever made for anybody? Yeah. Or that he ever ate himself. And it's like, well, I've eaten thousands and thousands of plates of food that were really good. And I've eaten, I've made thousands and thousands of wines that, you know, it's like, it's hard. Once you do this, like I've been doing it for so many years, it's, it's not so much any particular. I mean, it is a, it's not, I mean, I'd like to say it's not a cop out. Maybe no. it is. Well, what if I turned it around on you? What was the worst one you ever made? You know, do you have a total bomb? Ever? You know, the, the, the key is, oh, yeah, I've, I've made, okay, the worst <laughs> wine I ever made. This is good. I do have that. And this is, this is a great story because it was when I was first getting into wine. And I believed that, like, there's, you know, it, it, I, I was working in Napa. And we had a, the winery I worked for had Pinot Noir growing that was not very, any very good site. And it was, um, and so because it wasn't a very good site, it would, it would make this thing called second crop, which is extra grapes that grow later in the season that you don't want. Mm-hmm. And, but they, they would ripen eventually, but they're not good. It's like the, the main crop wasn't that good, and the second crop wasn't, even, wasn't good either. Worse. So, but they let us pick it. So this, I'm brand new, and everything's exciting. So I pick, we picked these grapes, and I had this old barrel I bought from it – was, it was just an old barrel that no one wanted. It was a 30-gallon barrel. It was half size. So, and then – we crushed the grapes and we made the wine and I didn't have where to store it. So I put it in my garage where it was, you know, hundred degrees or whatever. <laughs> and the, I mean, it was, everything was wrong about this, yeah. <laughs> but it tastes, you know, I was young and new to the industry and I made it. So it must be good, you know? And so I bottled some up and I took it into my boss at the winery I worked at. And this is a professional, no nonsense, wonderful man. Named John Cole, who, I, who was really my one of my first uh, serious mentors in the industry, and I I said I'd like you to try my wine, and he said sure, you know. <laughs> I poured him a glass, and he told me that it, in words that I can't say on a podcast <laughs> that it wasn't any good. He said it very matter matter of factly yeah. what he thought of it, and I was crestfallen. Yeah. But then you know, and he's like, you know, I mean, how did you make this? And I started thinking about what I did, and everything I did was contributed to it not being a good wine, <laughs> you know. And it, and it was a it was a great learning experience. And the the most important thing was is that just because I made it th- didn't mean it was good, yeah. you know. And and every winemaker needs to have that epiphany, you know, at some point, hopefully earlier in the process. And so you, you talk to a lot, you know, what I, it's interesting. You, you hear, you talk to artists or musicians and you ask them about their great best performance. And it, the amazing thing that sticks out to me is they all, when you ask them about a specific performance, they go, oh, I missed that note on, you know, in the third mm-hmm. bar, the second chorus or something. And that may be your favorite solo ever. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but right. they're still picking it apart as a professional. You know, and it's like, at one point it becomes, how good is your body of work? You know, what are the high points? What are those things, you know, that's, when you do this as a a career, that's what it, that's what I, it's too hard to keep track of all these little things. Like having one good game versus winning the championship, the two different things. Yes, yeah. I mean, there's a great, some great games in there. (laughs) You know, there are some really (laughs) exciting moments, but they pale in comparison to the bigger picture which is how have you performed over the long haul what 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 have you accomplished what big things have you accomplished so to me yeah i've made some great wines and the funny thing is you know i have wines that get you know i send in two wine one wine to to the critics you send it to four different critics and one critic gives it the highest score he's ever got you've ever gotten 94 points, 96 points. The other critic gives it 88. Like, if you ask those two, 
one of them may say that was the best wine I ever had. And the other one may say, what is, may say meh, you know, so it's like <laughs> you kind of step back and you go like, I know I make good wines and I know objectively what the, what makes a great wine. You know, I mean, you could pick it apart analytically like, well, it's, it's concentration of these characteristics. It's mm-hmm. lack of flaws. It's this it's elements of complexity that are formed by these things that I know about and that I've learned how to do and, and in all in balance with each other and, not, you know, no elbow sticking out, no, you know, smooth, easy to drink, blah, 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 blah. I mean, but even back to what you were talking about earlier about the relativity, like the context and mm-hmm. the other wines that are similar and the history and all of that, it's never going to be an objective. It can't be. So it's, there's always a mystery. Analysis. And that's yeah. actually what makes it interesting and exciting is the mystery and, mm-hmm. the, and the fact that it's always changing. You know, and I may have, it's not even what's the best wine I ever made. It's which bottle did I drink at the perfect time <laughs> in its aging process? Perfect for me. Because perfect for me may be different from someone who likes more age on their wine. Yeah. You know, so it's, I don't try to keep track of that. I just enjoy doing this and being here and doing my best and trying to contribute to the industry and, and uh, in my region and, and not worry about those things. So, I mean, it's, a good, it's an important question so that I can answer, give you that answer mm-hmm. because I get the question often. And I've probably lost the job that I interviewed for where the guy said, what was your favorite wine? And I said, I'm a, you know, honestly, I'm a winemaking professional. It's like I don't think about it that way. Oh. But I guarantee you I'll make you great wines. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like that's not what he wanted to hear. Yeah. But he's not a winemaker. He wasn't a winemaker either. So. Yeah. It was. Uh, you wouldn't understand that. It was a bad answer to if I wanted to get the job, but I don't. You know, conversely, I really. You know, after I he, if he didn't want me for that answer, then he he, he got someone else. He didn't want me anyway. <laughs> It'd be the <laughs> so, wrong fit. It wouldn't yeah. have been a good fit. So yeah. I mean, I answered it the way that makes the most sense for me. How sustainable is winemaking, and and particularly here in Washington State? And what kind of things do you do with a focus on sustainability? Well, you know, it's, I love our region because it's, I would say it's probably the, in terms of existing wine growing regions where there's already stuff growing. Now, now, like, if you have to go somewhere and dig up a native plant and plant wine graves, that's, yeah. you know, you can have a whole other argument about why are we doing this? Right. But considering we're in an agricultural area that's been making, you know, growing orchards and vineyards for over 100 years, um, whether that's in Washington or France or in, in uh, California or South America, yeah. or Australia or wherever, um, I would say that our region is among the most sustainable in terms of uh, inputs we have to do to and effect on the environment so if you think about um you know the the wine grape is a is a plant that in in its native environment it grows up in a tree it covers a tree and berries form and birds eat them and and fly off and spread the seeds around yeah and that's that's not how a wine grape grows in a vineyard the a vineyard grows uh, so um when it when it vines up a tree, it's it's spread out. It's 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 stressed. It doesn't. It's not. It's not constrained, and it, and it it grows naturally. And, and nothing's. You don't have to feed it. You don't have to spray it. You don't have to do anything. Well, when you put a vineyard, when you put a wine in a vineyard, a grapevine in a vineyard, all of a sudden you're changing it and you're making it so that okay now, because the vine is is it's being put in a small area. And, and now it's more prone to uh, have a higher humidity environment, and now it might have fungus. And now that there's a bunch of them all together, and they might get attacked by insects. And so what are we going to do about this? The monocropping problem. Yeah, it's, since it's not one vine growing in a tree in a field somewhere, it's, yep. a, it's a thousand vines growing in an acre with nothing else other than you know, cover crop growing there. It's now susceptible to attack by pathogens and disease, you know, viruses and bacteria and bugs and fungus and things like that. So it's our crop. What are we going to do? We have to figure out how to manage it. Well, if you're in a place where, and grapevines are very susceptible 
to fungus. Mm. One of the things that with, with grapes is that we have, we've kept the same varieties for hundreds of years. We, haven't, we don't breed them for it to change to a new variety that's fungal resistant. We keep right. the classic varieties, which, you know, now that's changing. I think people are realizing we have to be able to breed new grapes. But for the meantime, uh, how, do you, how do you avoid over-treating the vineyard and the environment? And that, if you come to a place like eastern Washington, we get six to ten inches of precipitation a year, which is not very much at all. It's about the same as Las Vegas, which is very, it's a desert. And, um, and it's very low humidity. The humidity is very low, and because the winds are drying and the, uh, we can control our moisture, we can limit the growth of the vine by cutting back on the water. So the vine is stressed, and it, and it grows sparsely. And when you do that, then it doesn't have a very high, it doesn't have high humidity in around the, the vine. And so it yeah. tends to not need, it doesn't tend to have the kind of fungal pressure most other wine growing regions have. Hmm. And, and that's, I mean, that's what, that's why people spray sulfur on grapevines, you know, in most areas. And um, we, we do have some fungal pressure, but it's, it's less than or equal to the lowest in the world. So for that, for that point of view, if you manage your, grape, your vineyard properly, it takes less inputs in that regard. And we do, uh, because we have drip irrigation, to, we don't necessarily have to spray. You would not have to do as many of the inputs as most other regions do. And uh, it's possible to, to grow with very, very little uh, inputs here compared to almost anywhere else in the world. So in that regard... Wine grapes that grow in eastern Washington, it's probably, in terms of inputs, one of the more sustainable areas and effect on the environment. And then in terms of water usage, grapevines are one of the most, if not the most, uh, low-usage crops that you can grow. Mm. And, so, and we use drip irrigation on top of that. So for, for that perspective, it is. Now, you know, it's... Uh, and in terms of overall... Um, assuming you want to have wine, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, the, the best thing is to not grow any grapes or anything, you know, it's just to forage in your backyard. But if you're assuming you want a product, it's, it is a very low input product. And in Washington state, probably one of the lowest. And in fact, lot, most of our industry, uh, the larger part of the industry is mechanized on top of that. So that ends up being lower usage on, in terms of, um, diesel and, and you know and things like that so it's it's a it's actually quite an efficient system is there pressure on the wine making you know, wine grape growing and wine making industries community um on sustainability issues like oh you got to do more you need to do this or that i know there's a lot of movements to push for more of that kind of stuff well yes and i think a lot of it comes from the consumer and from uh, concerned, uh, you know, businesses that realize that we need to make sure that what we're doing is sustainable. And um, I think that's, that's uh, there's a broadening perception amongst everybody that, you know, we're all, it, this is not disposable. You know, we can't use this and move on. I mean, if you go 20 miles south or if you go th- 40 miles south of here, it's not like there's another Yakima Valley down there where you can just plant new grapes. I mean, this is one of the great places in the world to so grow wine grapes. So it has to be maintained sustainably yeah. to not be lost. Exactly. And, and so in that regard, each what's interesting is there are, there are systems in, that many regions have put in place that give sustainability guidelines. And... Um, what, what you find working in, uh, in each area, though, is that the guidelines for California don't necessarily work in Washington, and the guidelines from the Willamette Valley don't necessarily work in the Napa Valley because you have, it's a different climate. You have different issues that are related to the geography and the ge- you know, of the spot. And so you know, each region is, is, needs to make sure they're developing appropriate sustainability um, you know guidelines you think that applies to a lot of the pressures in the food system 
um, as far as people saying, oh, you know, X product needs to be more sustainable. Well, what that looks like totally depends from region to region, even from farm to farm, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, for instance, um, if you are not, if you're growing grapes in, in, on the west, say you're growing grapes in Utah, you know, and your drainage is, this, is the Great Salt Lake, you don't necessarily have to be salmon safe in Utah, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas here you do, you know, because yeah. the, there's salmon out there. So it's a, you know, so if, if salmon safe is one of your criteria, you just don't, you know, and you call it, a, you know, I'm just, this is hypothetical. Yeah. You know, but if you're trying to make someone in Utah do salmon safe winemaking, <laughs> you may be, do, they may be doing something or using a, a product that they need to, to control some Utah pest that's not salmon friendly, you know, so, Mm -hmm. but, uh, and that's, I think what we find is that uh, as we address uh, each of these, we need to acknowledge that, you know, and and that's, that each region's different, and that's what's so great about having um, Washington State University having a viticulture and enology department, where we have researchers who understand our region, and Oregon State in Oregon is doing the research down there, and in UC Davis and Fresno State and, and all of the, you have to have a localized understanding in academia and, and, and professionals who, who can mold the sustainability to fit their, their region. And, and the cookie cutter approach is hard. It, it, it causes problems. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, everybody would like to think you can just take it from Oregon and put it into Washington, but it, they grow in a maritime, uh, you know, a moderate and cool environment and we grow in a desert in a continental yeah. environment it's completely different it's apples and oranges or apples and, and hazelnuts you know <laughs> so, totally. so you can't yeah. you you just have to make sure that it's it's it, but within those within that statement uh, absolutely that's where we all have to go and the great news is that even conventional farming is getting better i mean it's so much better than it was even 15 years ago and technology and and, and things like that. So, for instance, you know, one of the one of the uh, one of the great things that was invented over the last twenty years was uh, dealing with. Uh, we have these little worms that these little caterpillars in the spring, and they they'll climb up the post and nibble on the grapevines. And and in the old days, they used to just nuke the whole vineyard with something you know awful. Mm-hmm. And it was you know you didn't you couldn't even go in the vineyard and to get rid of these caterpillars. And that was twenty years ago. And then the researchers realized, well, what we can do is set up an ATV with an electric eye, and we can spray capsaicin on the posts. And when the worm crawls up the grape post and hits the capsaicin, it doesn't. It's, it burns its feet, and it turns around and goes back down. Like the stuff that makes my hot sauce spicy. Yeah, exactly. Perfect. So, so you know, so we went from having like pepper spray for exactly <laughs> caterpillars, and it doesn't moths. necessarily kill the, the caterpillars. It just prevents them from coming up and nibbling on the grape, on the buds. And so those kind of things, that's just one tiny example. It was a, a very important one. Yeah. But, you know, understanding the, the, the impact of beneficial insects. It, you know, for instance, we found that some of the most beneficial, uh, there are these little wasps that, that predate other insects. And you don't want it, you want them to stay alive. And so you don't want to do anything that's going to get rid of those wasps because they do more control than your spray, any sprays would do. So, you know, and we found that sagebrush harbors more of these than by a factor of 10 than Mm. anything. I mean, we had people planting blackberries and planting things to harbor these insects. And then we found out, oh, actually the sagebrush. It's just kind of ubiquitous around here. Yeah, you want to make sure, don't pull out the sagebrush. You know, keep it growing around your vineyard and things like that. So it's... As we learn more, we're able to react. It's, it's more like jujitsu, you know. You use the the use the, uh, the the inertia that's already there to accomplish your goal, and so that's the that's the real benefit. Now, if we, if you counted on someone from UC Davis figuring out that sagebrush harbors beneficials, you'd be waiting a hundred years. But they don't have that. They don't there. have it down there. So <laughs> that's why we need yep. our researchers up here. And, and so that's what's really, I mean, we've seen in the time I've been here, in the 25 years I've been here, that's, you know, watching the development of irrigation, new and better irrigation, and better, you know, plant health, uh, um, plant material, hmm. um, it, uh, detecting, you know, viruses and 
and getting rid of them and and figuring out how to cut back on on the inputs. It's been a it's been immense since I've in just the last twenty five years. Having this tasting room here like this, you have such a direct touch point with consumers, mm-hmm. unlike many others in the food and farming world do. What has that taught you? What what do consumers care about right now? What are you hearing from people? What what do they want to know about how you produce your wine? Well, you know what I find is that there's a real for the people who come out here. There's a real hunger for um, learning about this area and what makes it unique and the geology of it and the and the climate and the and all of these little things we're talking about. You know, it, it, the funny thing is because. By the time someone comes out here, they don't just stumble in. I mean, they, they make an effort to get out here. Right. And uh, all of the stuff that we're talking about today is stuff that they find fascinating. And they're curious about why do you do this? Why did you do it here? You know, why do you live here? Well, part of why I live here is so because I, I get up every morning and I stick my face out the window or the door. And I know if it's dry or windy or cold or hot and how that affects the I mean, that's important, yeah. you know, to me when I'm making wine is, is like, okay, how am I reacting and responding to, the, to where the grapes are? Mm-hmm. And I feel I do a better job by being here. And, those, and I, I try to get that across to the folks who come out here. But honestly, the people who make, who make the effort to come out here are uniformly, you know, curious. And they're, they're, on a, they're kind of on a mission to find out this stuff. And what, what about sustainability stuff? Do they ask about that too? You know, I think uh, I don't hear, I don't necessarily hear as much as, um, you know, I don't hear as much about that as perhaps you might in Seattle. I think, you know, you know it's, um, and it may be because they've driven 200 miles and, <laughs> and burned you know, two tanks of gas to get here. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, at some point it's, um, they're on a, you know, and they don't come that often. I mean, it's not like I have the same people coming over from Seattle every two right, weeks or something. Right. They're, they're on a fact, they're kind of on a, it's almost like a wine safari. They're, mm-hmm. They've gone out into the wilds of eastern Washington and they're going to bag some, you know, <laughs> see some wildlife and bag some, some great <laughs> bottles. And, and it's an adventure, it's a vacation, and just like almost any other vacation. And so... Um, I try to, you know, if they have questions, I try to give them as, as, at least same straight answers I can about them, you know. And uh, I think, you know, the things I try to do that I feel people appreciate is that I, I use lightweight glass because glass bottles are, uh, you know, sh- melting the glass and shipping the glass and all of that is uh, heavy, big bottles. Yeah carbon footprint they increase your carbon footprint so and i typically use american made products for everything you know the, the mm. caps i use the labels i use and the labels i use are made locally the glass i try to get glass that's produced if not in seattle on the west coast california i mean they, they kind of tell me where they're, they're producing the glass but um and it, it boils down to quality and for me i mean since i use screw caps they need to have a perfectly you know perfectly made bottle and um, and the quality control we get here is better than uh, than cheap glass from overseas. So yeah. I, I it works for me, and it's a good it's more sustainable in my opinion, and it helps the economy here. Which I mean, for all those reasons, that's and I think th- people see that I'm making an effort. You know, is is having a winery and producing tiny amounts of wine. You know, is that. Probably the best thing for carbon footprints to have one giant winery that makes all the wine. <laughs> you know, everyone yeah. else sit at home and have them, you yeah. know, delivered in cans. You know, and so there's a certain amount of 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 carbon that's going to be made by having your own winery. And so I think, well, what can I do to mitigate that to the extent that I can, and right. still be able to have something special for people who want, a, you know, a naturally produced product from a, a local region that reflects what we do here. And it's part of the culture. So it's, it's a, you know, there's a trade-off everywhere, but I do whatever I can. And, and I'm, you know, for me, I'm, I'm actually more, you know, a lot of people, it's all about the romance. And I'm more of a pragmatic, practical person at heart. I know that I want, I mean, I have good intentions about 
these things, but I try not to get lost in the romance of it all. And I, and I, I approach a lot of it, you know, so for instance, I don't use corks. I feel that the screw caps are better for the environment and for, and in one regard, every bottle's good. Mm-hmm. You don't have to send a bottle. When you send a bottle back, talk about a carbon foot, footprint. You've, the, yeah. wa- the wine that you made is not good. The bottle is wasted. You, yeah. you know, you have to go get it, send it back or something like that. I mean, so what I say is every bottle's good when I make them. That saves me. That's a huge, I mean, if yeah. 2% of your bottles are bad because of the corks or 1%, that's still, unexce- I mean, the cost in carbon yeah. is huge there. So I'm, I'm like, honestly, using the screw cap is better yeah. for the environment because I don't waste any wine. And so I do think about these things, and I try to, if people are curious, um, I put a lot of thought into it, honestly. Do you think people know what goes into making their food? Like all the work, all the background. Oh, no, no, no. I don't think anyone thinks about that. I think very few people really think about it. You know, the great thing is now you have YouTube, and you can can pretty much go on and learn anything you want. If you're really curious, you can see it all, you know, and... uh, which YouTube video do do you believe though, and which one do you say? Uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> well, I think you can if a smart person, a perceptive per- person, can weed it, weed through it. Mm-hmm. You know, and I mean, most people have a good detect BS detector. <laughs> you know, it's, if you're if you grew up in this day and age, hopefully, and uh, but you can see how things are done and made, and uh, in, many times, and um, and you can also watch. Videos from people who are, you know, policing, you know, that kind of things and have concerns and have thought about it. So there's a lot of information out there. And, uh, and I, think, I think more and more people are curious, but more and more people are disconnected from farming and their food. And um, it's, you know, um, you know, like we saw in the pandemic, every, no one thinks about it until it's gone from the shelf, you know. <laughs> and then we start going wow, why isn't there this or that or the other? And then, you, you know, so um, I think, in my opinion, what's good for the environment and good for people's health and good for, um, you know, low, you know, sustainability is also ultimately, uh, when we take all cost into consideration, economically beneficial. So, it, and I think a lot of the, uh, especially our researchers and academics, uh, working in agriculture understand this, and they keep put moving towards that. So, in in fact, what's the healthiest way for people to farm? You know, how do we mechanize it so people don't get injured picking apples? How do we uh, how do we avoid wasting food? Yeah. How do we grow things that require less inputs and in chemicals? And how do we grow it? You know, whether that's how we irrigate it, how we uh, the varieties we plant, where we plant things, where we don't plant things. Ultimately, there are people, lots of smart people, figuring out how to do this better and better. And uh, I think they have to have a voice and to be heard and, and to uh, make sure that uh, they're speaking with their legislators also. So, you know, economic interests that, that are not necessarily sustainable aren't being, um, you know, aren't winning the day if, if there's yep. concerns. So, uh, but I think there's a lot of that going on behind the scenes I'm encouraged when I when I read and and uh, see the research and the and the and see the effects of the reduced inputs, like we're talking about with the little caterpillar. I mean, that was an amazing thing that made the environment better and cost less money at the same time. So, I mean, it's a win-win-win, and I think that's ultimately how the change is going to occur when people see that the right thing to do is also the cheap, you know, the best way that. The, that sustains both them economically and uh, and environmentally as well. Well, thanks for having me out to the winery here. This is so cool. I feel like we should do multiple episodes because there's so many more questions I want to ask you. So I may have to come back here. Well, that'd be great, Dylan. This is fun. I mean, I love what you're doing here, and it's uh, and I and it's I think it's so important that people do know that the folks who are uh, who are bringing them their food and wine and beverages uh, are thinking about these things and are concerned and want what they want in many ways which is a a great place for all of us and all of our children to live in and yeah i i agree 100 percent. that's why we do this podcast and hopefully we can help 
starting start to build some trust because mm-hmm. i think when we start trusting each other then we can work together towards that ultimate goal that we all really want absolutely and i think that's what you know what i i do want to say that what i think people what i do get from most of my people my consumers and customers is they long for a feeling of authenticity and trust and those are things you can't fake mm-hmm. and uh that's the more of that that we have the more satisfied the customers are. And, you know, there's enough marketing and, and, and inauthenticity out there. Mm. So yep. I think there's a wide open market for authentic, uh, authentic uh, products and experiences for people. And um, I see that every day. Well, thank you for doing that, Perfect. providing that. And thanks again for having me. You're welcome. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. These are the stories of the people who grow your food. 